0: Thank you very, very much, um, I'm really happy to be here, I think, <laughs> I am actually on a trip from New York to Palm Beach via Phoenix, <laughs> <laughs> all in one day, I landed at about 5 o'clock today, this oh, afternoon, and I have a 10 o'clock flight back to the east coast. wow. And uh, what motivated me was a strong desire to meet again with the people who I met on the two trips from Phoenix, and uh, I'm glad, I am glad. really am glad to be here. I'm exhausted, but glad to be here. I have a problem, which is, some of you have heard, those of you on the two trips heard my basic philosophy, others who are here, I have to do a little bit of a summing up of what that is, so that we can follow up with the other stuff I was going to talk about. I was going to devote my talking to this evening primarily about Israel. But I do want to, just as a recap, because I'm sure those who are on the first trip definitely don't remember, and some of you on the second trip may not remember what I said. Yeah. So I'm going to remind you, and while I'm reminding you, those who haven't heard me will get the idea. I began my talk, if I remember correctly, by saying, You all know that Judaism is a religion, right? And you all said, yes. And I said, wrong! (laughs) It's not. Judaism is not a religion. It's never been a religion. Judaism is the religious culture of the Jewish people. But to understand being Jewish must begin with an understanding of what we mean by people and cannot be understood if you define Judaism as a religion. For me, one of the greater failings of America is that we have failed to teach in America that the Jews are a people. And what we have succeeded in teaching is we've even taught the members of our people That they're a a religion. There's a lot of reasons, and I went into the reasons when we spoke. You remember I spoke about the emancipation. I spoke about modernity, meeting the Jew in the ghetto, and the different reactions that Jews had to meeting with modernity, one of which was that from now on, we're a religion. But that only happened 200 years ago. Until 200 years ago, the idea of the Jews being a religion was unheard of. So we are a people. So what's a people? I don't know. (laughs) So we spent the rest of the time talking about what could be the possible meanings of that idea of a people. And I told a story that some of you may remember of a very famous bank in New York City called the Chase Manhattan Bank. A very successful bank, even though it's not a Jewish bank. (laughs) The Chase Manhattan Bank is a slogan that every kid in New York knows. And that slogan is you have a friend at Chase Manhattan. There's not a kid in New York, not a person in New York who doesn't know that you have a friend at Chase Manhattan. Costs a fortune, but you have a
1: friend at <laughs> Chase Manhattan.
0: It's written on every train, on every underground, on every bus, you can see the advertisement. You have a friend at Chase Manhattan. When Bank Discount of Israel opened up its first branch in New York, they looked for a slogan to attract customers, and they came out with an amazing slogan, an amazing ad. That you heard every four hours on local television and every hour on local radio. And that ad said, You may have a friend at Chase Manhattan, but we're mishpoche.
1: <laughs> <and> we're family. <laughs>
0: and they hit the nail on the head. Because what is a people? A people is
1: primarily a family.
0: How do I know that we Jews are a family? We are always fighting,
1: <laughs>
0: like any good family. Where do the best fights always take place? Always in the family, because you care what a member of your family said. They said it. So what? You said it? Ah. <laughs> and it's amazing how imperative it is today to understand that the Jews are a family. I live in a little country in the Middle East called Israel which some of you recently visited which is a Jewish state. It's a state of the Jews. If we're a religion what right do we have to have a state? There's no religion in the world that has a state. There are many states that have religions. There is only one other state that has a, it's not really a state, and that is the Vatican. Vatican. And there was somebody who suggested that the Jews should have a Vatican in Israel. You know what his name was? Mr. Arafat. He said, and he wrote, that he would be willing, out of the goodness of his heart, sweet man, he would give us two square miles in the middle of Jerusalem where we could have a Jewish Vatican with a Jewish pope, or two popes, an Ashkenazic pope and a Stalin pope, <laughs> or maybe three popes, a reformed pope, a Conservative pope, and or an orthodox pope, to run the Jewish religion, but not a state. Peoples are entitled to states, not religions. And when you teach that we have a religion, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an accident that I, as president of Hillel, had a really hard time on campus trying to explain to students why they should understand Israel. They, said, they don't understand. Why should a religion have a state? And they're quite right? We're a people. I want to tell you a little bit, that's the background to what I spoke about in Israel. I could have done that in three minutes like I did it now. But they asked me to kill an hour and a half. So I <laughs> a few weeks ago, we, you know, in, in the Jewish calendar, we don't really have red letter days. We have red-letter periods. There's a period of the three weeks before Tisha B'Av that commemorates the destruction of our temple. It's a three-week period in which we mourn for the temple that was destroyed, or both temples that were destroyed on the same day. The Days of Atonement not the one day of Yom Kippur, it's the whole period from Rosh Hashanah, from the new year until Yom Kippur. The Passover doesn't stand alone. It is linked by seven weeks to the festival that's coming up called Shavuot. In any Jewish community around the world, the ten busiest time of rabbis Are the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The synagogues get filled by people who haven't been there since the previous year. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: People are buying new clothes. You can sense it in the air. It's a very religious holiday. A very religious period. It's when man stands before God and asks God to forgive us for our sins. You know, there's a prayer, and I remember telling at least group one this, I don't remember if I said it to group two. There's a prayer that we say on Yom Kippur five times. It's called the Alchet. It's a long list of sins that you read out, you ask God to forgive you for them. And as you read these list of sins, if you're a passionate prayer, you beat your chest as you read each sin one after another. And I'm a very passionate guy, so after young people, I can't touch myself. But, <laughs> but I want you to know something. Half of the sins that appear on that list, at least half, I've never done. I've never done them. So why am I beating my chest? Because the interesting thing about Jewish prayer, it's never in the singular. Because you don't pray as an individual. You pray as a member of your community. I'm beating my chest for your sins. I hope you enjoyed them. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. You know why? We do that because we're a family. We talk, we pray in the plural. There is in Israel a period of red letter days that I think are very important to the Jewish world and one day are going to become central to Jewish life throughout the world. They begin with Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Day, and end with Yom HaShoah, Independence Day in Israel. I call the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the ten days of awe, A-W-E, and the nine days between Yom HaShoah and Yom HaSem'ot are the nine days of we, just W-E without the A. Because I remember very clearly my first year in Israel, 1958. My God, that's a long time ago. Well, almost 60 years, and I'm I'm, I'm only 40 years old. I don't know how I remember 60 years, (laughs) but still, I was in Tel Aviv on Yom Hashoah, walking down Dizengoff Street, a busy road, and all of a sudden, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the air raid sirens go off. I don't know why we say they go off. They went on. It's crazy language, English. The sirens go off. They go on. <laughs> the sirens go on, and all of a sudden everybody stops and stands for attention and attention for two minutes in commemoration of an event that never happened in Israel. I don't know of anything like that in any other country in the world. What national holiday is spent commemorating something that didn't happen in that country? For me, that is the greatest evidence of Israel being a Jewish state because this period begins with a commemoration of not what happened to Israel, not what happened in Israel, but what happened to the Jewish people it commemorates the horrible destruction of one third of our people in the Holocaust. And it's a really sad day in Israel. You can sense it in the air. And you can go to any kid in Israel and say, how many people's deaths are we commemorating today? And any kid will say to you, six million. It's a magic number. And you can say to him, do you remember any one of them? Did you know anyone? It's already 65, 70 years ago. They don't. They remember the number. It's not a personal mourning, it's a collective mourning. A member of this people mourning the loss of one third of their people. And a week later, we come to Yom HaZikaron, Memorial Day. We don't have Memorial Day sales in Israel. <laughs> Memorial Day is the only day in which is very easy to find parking in the shopping malls because there's no one there. We don't have sales, and the air raid siren goes off or goes on again twice on that day, once in the evening, at the beginning of the, of, the, of the day, and once again at eleven in the morning, and again the entire people stop and stand in attention in memory of something that's very real. The lives, remembering the lives of those people who gave their lives for the defense of the state of Israel. And you can go to any kid in the street and you can say to them, how many many deaths are we commemorating today? And you'll never get the right answer. Because it's constantly changing. This year changed twice during the day. The number went up. It doesn't stop. I remember two years ago, I spent Memorial Day with the Australian ambassador. He said, by God, for the last 60 years in Australia, we've been remembering on Memorial Day the same number of people since 1945. And these are the changes during the day itself. You can ask any kid, do you know of anyone? There's a lot of person in the country who doesn't know somebody. A parent, a brother, a son, a neighbor. It's a very sad day. You can feel it in the air. Buses are free to go to the cemeteries on Memorial Day. And that's how people spend their time visiting the graves of those friends they had who gave their lives for the state of Israel. And it's a really sad day. And then suddenly, suddenly, just because the clock moves from 7:59 to eight o'clock, the entire moon changes. At 7.59 you're in deep mourning, and at 8 o'clock you're banging each other on the head with plastic hammers, dancing in the streets, singing, great entertainment all over, all the food shops open up. It's very difficult. I mean, how do you move from a sense of deep mourning to ultimate joy just because the clock moved by one minute? It's almost schizophrenic. It's not accidental. There was a big debate about whether these days should be separated. And David Ben-Gurion insisted that the days be put together. And why? He said because as long as we can give value to what we've got in return for the sacrifice we made, will we be a healthy people? And what is it that we got for the sacrifice that we made on Yom Hazikaron? The guarantee that what we commemorated a week ago on Holocaust Day will never ever happen again. So it's a nine-day period that is intimately linked together and deals not with Israel but deals with the Jewish people's Coming to life again in the state of Israel. So many of the people on the trip. Who are so young still. Don't remember the Holocaust. But my God. For me to sit and think. That in my own lifetime. Jews. Were exterminated. In ovens. And today. Today. Jews are building the highest technology in the world, in their own state, that Jews are free and welcome in the great United States of America, and in my own lifetime, and I'm not that old. I am, actually. If I'm a Jew, I'm I'm 3,000 years old. And I look damn good for my age. (laughs) But in my own lifetime, those two extremes were reached. And look what's happening in this country in the United States of America. Where we're loved! I had to fly from New York to London. And Al Al doesn't do that route. So I flew on another airline, Virgin Atlantic. Great airline. Not as good as Al, but a great airline. And sitting next to me was a very nice young woman. She was way young in my eyes. She was about 50 or something. And they brought me my kosher meal. And she says to me, Oh, you're Jewish. I said, yes, I do. I just want you to know, I have four daughters, and they all married Jewish guys. I said, "Really? You must be a very proud Jewish mother." She said, "I'm an Italian Catholic." (laughs) As a matter of fact, we wanted our children to marry Jews. They don't cheat. They don't drink. They don't gamble. They don't know us. They really don't know us! (laughs) We have loved in this country. You know what happened to the Jewish people in America? We are world experts in how to live with with non-Jews who hate us. We've had 2,000 years of experience. We know how to get around them, we know how to get under them, we know how to get beside them don't know how to live with non-Jews who love us. You know what happens? All of a sudden, our children start intermarrying. I don't know how anybody could have expected anything else in the United States of America. You can't bring up your children by saying to you, I want you to be better than the the non-Jew at being American. I want you to be just like him. I want you to study his studies. I want you to do this. Just don't marry him. Not going to make sense in America. For me, in my lifetime, intermarriage was equivalent to assimilation. In America today, intermarriage is a fact of life. And therefore, I and many others have gotten ourselves involved in Honeymoon Israel. In order to try to ensure that intermarriage is not necessarily assimilation, one of the things I said to you, and I hope you remember it, sitting in my audience when they come to Israel, these young people, and I look at them and I say, I think I hope you remember my saying it to you. I know who's in the room with me. There's some of you who are born Jews. You have my
1: sympathies.
0: (laughs) There are some of you who decided to join us. And there are some of you who had the chutzpah to marry a member of my family. Well, you know what? Now you're stuck with me. (laughs) Because if you married a member of my family, your children are going to be members of my family. And I'm going to try damn hard Make sure you bring them up that way. Can't force you, but I'm going to try damn hard because I'm not giving up on the Jewish people. In a world in which anti in which assimilation—sorry, intermarriage—is a fact of life, turning your back on those who intermarried is giving up on their children as members of our people. I'm glad that the Honeymoon Israel program is not called Honeymoon Hawaii, and that nobody's funding a ticket for them to go to Hawaii. That is in Bring them to Israel, enabling them to come to Israel, enabling them to meet with the Jewish people in their national home. Seeing your synagogues, you give legitimate and important religious expression to the Jewish people. In Israel, you give national expression to the Jewish people. But the Jews are neither a religion nor a nation. We are people that needs to give expression, both in religious terms and in national terms. And Israel provides the opportunity to ourselves nationally and synagogues give us the opportunity to express ourselves religiously. Dates May the 14th, 1948. A gentleman with an amazing haircut, (laughs) David Ben Gurion, gets up on a platform somewhere in Tel Aviv and reads out the most important legal document that the state of Israel has. We don't have a constitution in Israel, unfortunately. We don't even have a proper Bill of Rights. The most important legal document that we have in the State of Israel is our Declaration of Independence, in which the Jews living in Israel gave expression to their aspirations for what the state should become. And it's amazing, David ben Gurion is about to announce the creation of the State of Israel. He doesn't say, I hereby declare the creation of the State of Israel, He says, I hereby declare the creation of a Jewish state to be known as Israel. And ever since then, Israel and the world has been in total confusion. What the heck do you mean by a Jewish state? A state doesn't eat kosher. A state doesn't pray. A state doesn't keep Shabbat. You can't even circumcise a state. Although there are people cutting off little bits and pieces all over the place. That's not circumcision. So what are you talking about when you talk about a Jewish state? What is he referring to? And when you read that document, it's amazing. Because when you read, I think it's one of the great Works of diplomatic art, the wording of Israel's Declaration of Independence. For instance, it says a sentence over there Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. What? What's Jewish immigration? Moving Jews from here to there. What's the ingathering of the exiles? Moving Jews from here to, sorry, sorry. from here to there. Not from here, I'm sorry. sorry.
1: sorry.
0: From here to there. Why say it twice? Ah. You know why? Because Israel is a very, very complex place. We suffer from bad publicity around the world. We've hired, Israel has hired the best PR companies in the world to do our PR. It doesn't do any good. Because PR companies know how to take something and put it into simplistic terms. Israel is very complex. Israel is a phenomena. And like all phenomena, there are master stories that impact on what this phenomena is all about. There are two big master stories about Israel. The one story—I don't think I've told you this either. This I'm going to repeat it anyway. We have our poet laureate, the greatest writer in Israel, no longer with us. His name was Shai Agnon. He's the only Israeli who ever got the Nobel Prize for Literature. We have four people in Israel who got the Nobel Prize for Peace. We have no peace, but we got the Nobel Prize for <laughs> Peace. But in Agnon's case, it was very justified Nobel Prize. Because to my mind, to, to be able to read Agnon and understand him on all his levels of sophistication is a sign of an intelligent and a knowledgeable Jew. Agnon tells a story. It's called in Hebrew, Maseha, is the story of the fable of a goat. It tells the story of a man who was groaning from, from his heart. and The doctor told him that he has to drink goat's milk. So he went out and bought himself a goat. And the strangest thing happened. Every few days, this goat used to disappear. And whenever the goat came back, its udders were filled with milk that had the taste of heaven. And the father wanted to know, where does this goat go? What does this goat do? What does this goat eat? So he called his son, and he said to his son, my son, please follow the goat. Tell me where he goes. And the son said, I will do it. And that, he said, I will tie a leash to the collar of the goat. And when the goat goes, he'll pull on the leash and I'll wake up and follow the goat. By the way, the word for leash in Hebrew is mishicha, written with a Hebrew letter, Cha. That's a lead, a a, uh, rain. Agnon spelt it mishicha with the letter Chet, which comes from the word Messiah. He doesn't usually make spelling mistakes. <laughs> that very night, the goat woke up and put on the leash. The sun woke up and followed the goat. The goat went out into the field and entered into a cave. They knew not how long they were in the cave, whether they were there for two days or for two hours or for two weeks. They came out on the other side, and the sun saw these beautiful, beautiful hills covered with beautiful greenery. He saw this box of fruit, trees. He saw water trickling down the mountains. He saw the goat eat from this box of fruit. He saw the goat drinking. And he lay down and basked in the sun as he watched the goat. He knew not how long he was lying there. Was he lying there for two days or for two hours or for two months? But all of a sudden the goat got up and started to turn and wanted to go back into the cave. And the sun began to follow the goat. And suddenly he saw three men in the distance. And he wanted to know where he was. So he went up to them and said to them, Who are you and where am I? And these men said, You are in the land of Israel. You are in the mountains of the Galilee. You remember the city of Mm Tzfat? You are near the city of Tzfat. And as is our custom, and today it's Friday evening, it's our custom on Friday evening to go out into the fields to welcome the Sabbath Queen. Come and join us. the son said, oh my goat, goat, oh my God, the goat is pulling to go in to the cave. My father's waiting. But it's Shabbat, I can't go. He said, I'll write my father a note. And he writes a note, and he puts the note in the goat's ear. He knew that whenever his father saw that goat, he used to pet the goat's head. And whenever the father pet the goat's head, the goat used to shake its head. He knew that the note would fall out. So he wrote to his father, he said, My father, I am in the land of Israel. You always spoke to me about the land of Israel as the land of our salvation. It's not only our destination, it's our destiny. Follow the goat, he will bring you to the land of Israel. And he put the note in the goat's ear. He sent the goat into the cave and he went off to pray. At the other end is a father waiting for his son. And the cave suddenly opens and a goat comes out alone. And the father must have felt the way that Jacob felt when the brothers came home without Joseph. And he said, well unto me, where is my son? Haim Chayara Ahalatu as an evil beast devoured him. Where is my son? And he was so sad he forgot to pet the goat's head. And the goat never shook its head. And the note never fell out. And every time the father saw this goat, he became more and more upset because of the memory of his son. And he couldn't take it so he called for the Ritual slaughterer, the Shochet, to come and butcher the goat. And they killed the goat, they skinned the goat, and then the note fell out. And the father read the note and said, Because I forgot to pet this goat's head, I lost my chances for salvation. Now, Agnon, when he went to get there, the Nobel Prize, in Scandinavia it's a prize that's given on Shabbat the ceremony he was an orthodox Jew he walked the 8 miles to the ceremony they give you a scroll and they give you a check he said please send it in the mail I don't take money on Shabbat and then he went to sit down and they said Mr. Agnon you're supposed to make a speech he said I don't know how to make a speech I'm a storyteller and he told the story And he ended off by saying, Mr. King, I want you to know something. I am a member of the first generation of Jews that found their way back to the land of Israel. And with that, he sat down. And in that story, what was Agamon telling? A great big story of the relationship between the Jewish people and the land of Israel for thousands of years. In which they dreamt of going back to the land of Israel. They were taught that living outside of Israel was punishment for their sins. Living outside of Israel, they were taught, is punishment. I was recently in Beverly Hills, California. I saw the suffering of my people. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible punishment. You wake up in the morning, you don't know whether you should swim in your indoor pool or your outdoor pool. It's not easy. But that is one story that stuck with the Jews that tied them for generations and generations and generations to the land of Israel. But it's not the only story about Israel. There's a second story. Because 250 years ago, the Jews were still living in the ghetto, dreaming of the return to Israel, when God forgives them, and all of a sudden, the Germany comes to Europe, and the ghetto walls start to fall, and the Jews begin to hear sounds from outside the ghetto, and among the things they heard from the outside the ghetto was also the story of modern nationalism. That the world is building new nations. America has been founded. Italy is unified. Poland is free. Germany is unified. And some Jews said, you know what? I want that. And they developed a whole new idea in Jewish thought. In which they said, Mr. Manju, you're building your nations. I'm going to build my nation. You have an anthem. You have a flag. You have a state. You have an army. That's the way I'm going to be Jewish. I'm not going to be one of you. I'm going to become just like you. I have an anthem, and my anthem is going to be called Hatikvah, the Hope," because I'm going to sing about the hope of the Jews to be forgiven and return to their land. And I'm going to have a flag, and my flag is going to be blue and white the colours of the prayer shawl in the synagogue. And I'm going to have a state, and my state's going to be in the land of Israel. And I'm going to have an army, and the girls in my army are going to be much better looking than yours. (laughs) And that was the beginning of modern Zionism. which is another story about Israel. So when you visit Israel, you know what's happening? You've got a cheap trip to Israel, but not only do you get a cheap trip to another country You've got a cheap trip to two countries Because what is Israel? Is it story number one? The place where God is promising to bring back He's fulfilling His promise to bring the Jews back to their land? Or is Israel the place in which the Jewish people are applying to themselves the laws of modern nationalism. What is Israel? What's going on in Israel? Is it the place in which God is fulfilling His promise to bring the Jews back to Israel? I don't know. Could be. Is Israel the place in which the Jews are applying to themselves the laws of Jewish nationalism? Yes. But some people don't think so. They think that all that Israel is about is about God fulfilling his promise. You know what's the difference between these two stories? Two completely different political conclusions. Because if Israel is the state in which God is fulfilling his promise to return his Jews to the land then the Palestinians are his problem, not my problem. (laughs) But if Israel is the land in which I'm applying to, to myself the laws of modern nationalism, what about another people who want to apply to themselves the laws of modern nationalism? It becomes my problem. So this affects your politics in Israel. Those two stories constantly affect each other in Israel. And both of those stories are about something called the Jewish people, not the Jewish religion. And you can't understand Israel, you can't read sensibly a newspaper in Israel, you can't figure out what's going on if you don't understand that the Jews are a people and these two different stories that impact them all the time. Do any of you remember those pictures on television of Israeli soldiers putting, pulling Israeli Jews out of Gaza? You remember those pictures? You know what that was? That was a moment of a clash between these two stories. The settlers were living over there, not because of modern nationalism. The government had told them to get out. They had sent the army in to bring them out. They were there because of story number one. I'm here because God is fulfilling His promise to return the Jews to the land. And the army was sent in there because of modern nationalism. So to understand Israel is very complex, it's not simple, but bad. I want to tell you two stories the first basic law in the the state of Israel is a law which says any Jew is entitled to migrate to Israel it's called the law of Return. We don't have a constitution, but we do have what we call basic laws. What's the difference between a regular law and a basic law? You need a higher majority to amend a basic law than you do to amend a regular law. And the first basic law is a law which says every Jew is entitled to migrate to Israel. Do you understand that sentence? You all understand know what every is? You all know what entitled is. You all understand what migrate is. You all understand what Israel is. There's a little three little word over there that's not too clear. Okay. What do you mean by Jew? The moment they passed that law in the Knesset, ha, began a whole question, what do you mean by the word Jew? You know why? Because of the two stories I want to tell you. The one is a story by, about a guy called Father Daniels, Brother Daniel. A very very nice guy. His real name was Oswald Rufheizen. He grew up in a very religious family. He was so religious he became a Catholic. He became a Catholic priest. He moved to Israel to build a monastery on Mount Carmel, where he lived. And after he was living here for years, he realized he wasn't a citizen. He wanted to get citizenship. So he went to get citizenship. He went to the Ministry of Interior and said, I would like to become a citizen. He said, fine. You've been here for five years. you behave yourself. You're entitled to get citizenship. He said, I don't want that kind of citizenship. I want citizenship under the law of return, which says every Jew is entitled to migrate to Israel. And the woman at the Ministry of Interior said, yes, that applies to Jews. He says, I'm a Jew. She says, why are you wearing that funny collar? (laughs) He says, because I'm a Catholic priest. She said, I'll call my supervisor. (laughs) She called the supervisor The supervisor called her supervisor The supervisor called his supervisor And eventually the case reaches the Supreme Court of Israel And Brother Daniel comes over and says I don't know what you guys are making a fuss about I'm a Catholic priest But I'm a Jew My parents are Jewish I'm a born Jew I came to Israel to live with my people Catholicism is my religion said we have to appoint a panel of three judges to judge in this case by chance he chooses the people for the case purely by their roster by how busy they are he appoints the three people who are free at that time to hear this case two happen to be orthodox jews and one happened to be a secular jew you know what happened the two orthodox jews said he's right he's jewish He's got a Jewish mother, he's Jewish. The secular Jew, the secular judge said, no. The moment you took upon yourself another religion, you removed yourself from your people. Can you think of another people in this world that you can say this about? The moment you take upon yourself another religion, you remove yourself from the people. the war of He lived on He had a wonderful taste and he fell in love with a Swedish volunteer on his kibbutz. And he went back to Gothenburg and they got married. and he came back to his kibbutz and they had two children. and he went to the Ministry of Interior to register his children. In his uh, identity card. And when you register in Israel, you're either Jew, Arab, or other. So he goes and he wants to register his children. He gets back the identity card. His children are registered as other. He says, What do you mean, other? They're Jewish. She says, No, they're not. Their mother's not Jewish. what are you talking about? The only language my children speak is Hebrew. The only customs they know are Jewish customs. Come to the kibbutz and tell me how are they different from any other kid on the kibbutz. All the kids in the kibbutz are not religious. My kids also are also not religious. They're just like anybody else. Of course they're Jewish. They said, no. He said, I'm going to the Supreme Court the Supreme Court. And this time, the Supreme Court, the National Supreme Court, said to the President, in essence, the Parliament, you have an unclear law for this. You haven't defined who is a Jew. And so you know what they did? They started to get together and create an amendment that would determine who is a Jew. And they found a terrific solution that said, who is a Jew? Someone who was born to a Jewish mother, or who has converted, and is not a member of another religion. That solved the problem in two cases, right? One, or, and. Either you're born to a Jewish mother, or you converted, and you do not have another religion. I like to solve the problem. Brother Daniel had to live with that. Shavit had to live with that. But there was a man who lived on 77, 770 Eastern Parkway by the name of Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, I can't leave a law like that on the books. Why? What's wrong with that law? Not clear, didn't it clarify? Is it, what do you mean by convert? And that's what started the big battle in Israel over the question of conversion, converting to Judaism. And the struggle is still going on. How do I know a Jewish that Israel is a Jewish state? Because five times they've tried to add to this law the words. Converted according to Halacha, according to Orthodox law. It's never passed. They've never managed to pass it. But Israel's Knesset, the last time it failed by five votes in a parliament in which were sitting nine Arabs. So how do I know they're a Jewish state? An Arab decided who is a Jew. Now try to tell me that that's not complicated. Israel is a very complicated place trying to that. I tell you this to show you some of the complexities, some of the problems. How difficult it got, somebody for myself, to get myself involved in trying to work with the American because these the Jewish institutions still there with a problem about intermarriage. And I think it's a problem if you don't do anything about it. But I'm in a big campaign against the word conversion. I don't know where. Is there a rabbi in the room? There were two. Now there are two. What is this nonsense about conversion to Judaism? The word for converting somebody to Judaism in Hebrew is not conversion. It's the word giyur. And you know what giyur means? It comes from the Hebrew root lagur, to live with. Who is a converted Jew in Israel? Somebody who converts out. He may think he's a Catholic. Have I got news for you? Someone who becomes a Catholic by Jewish law is a converted Jew. But here in America, who's a converted Jew? Someone who converts to Judaism. You can't convert to a family. You can be adopted by a family. And that's why I'm involved in Israel. Because I want to do what I can to encourage people to be adopted into this family. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Convert to Jew is a non-Jewish. It means somebody who converts out. Somebody who joins us someone has decided to share their lot with us. I am trying to find a way of making a distinction between intermarriage and assimilation. If we keep driving away people who love us, who have the chutzpah to marry a member of my family, we're destroying the future of those children as Jews. And we need them and want them. so I love this program. I'm so glad you were all on it. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to meet you there. And that's what made me take this terribly long (laughs) route from New York to West Palm Beach Airport. (laughs) I thank you all for listening to me. That was the result of a survey that was recently done in Israel about what they call the happiness uh, of being an Israeli. My view of pollsters
1: <laughs>
0: is very unclear. I think that Israelis are, it's amazing, they're living under war, they're living being knifed in the streets. They're they're living in a state which is not always treating other people the way they should. And yet they're happy. I have to believe that what creates for human beings a sense of happiness and contentment is meaning in life. Having a meaningful life. Israelis live with a meaningful life. They wake up in the morning with a purpose. I think that's what makes them happy. Makes them content. I cannot think of any other reason because everything else about living in Israel is very difficult. I know I live. I pay the highest taxes in the world. I've got to live with Israeli
1: drivers.
0: (laughs) I have to live with Israeli politicians. Why should I be happy? People are happy when they have meaning in their lives. And I want to tell you, I was asked in an interview by the rabbi earlier today, this evening, before I came into this room. He asked me, "Okay, so we're a people what's so special about being a people? Was there any meaning to being this people? Yes, the Jews are a people with a meaning. This last week, we read in the portion of the week a very interesting sentence. The portion of the week called Ktoshim: Be a Goikadosh. Jews, be a holy people. Why? Because I, your God, am holy. And Jews have been pondering over that sentence for 3,500 years trying to figure out what happened. What is he talking What are they talking about? What does it mean that God is holy? And what does it mean to be holy? Most people say be holy. If you an Orthodox probably think, of oh, sit a Yeshiva and learn. You're an ethical person. Behave ethically. I heard a wonderful explanation today. the one thing in our narrative about God that we we know. Everything that Jews say about God, the only one thing we know for certain is that there is nothing that God does for himself. Everything that God does is for others. Ah, that's what makes him holy. Therefore, what is the meaning of to you be holy. Devote your lives to the welfare of others. On Yom when you saw those young people, the graves. You walk through Mount Herzl. You see the cemeteries and the graves of these 18-year-old kids who gave their life for their people. Israelis have a sense of meaningfulness in life. I know I was was the president of Hillel. I know Jewish youth throughout the world, especially in North America. There is a search for meaning that doesn't come very easily. Apparently that's what makes them feel content in Israel. And it's not easy, easy, because when you feel content, you don't really want to change. And Israel needs to change in many ways. Israel sometimes makes terrible, terrible mistakes. But that's also not a simple issue. You know, we are a Jewish majority in the Jewish state. We are a minority... In a Muslim Middle East. We are part of a minority, we are members of a a people who are a minority in the Western world. When any Israeli wakes up in the morning, he has no idea that whether he's a minority or a majority. It's a paranoia that we have. You wake up in the morning, you don't know whether you're a majority or a minority. And if you look at the mistakes that Israel makes, and we make mistakes sometimes, it's when we act like a minority instead of acting like a majority, or when we act like a majority when we should have acted like a minority. And it's going to take time for that to get out of our system. But if we are too content, we don't want to change. So I'm not happy with that pause. that we were so happy. I'd rather encourage more change in society in Israel. And it can happen. I'm not going to go into politics. I'm going to talk about politics. But we have the worst political system in the world. I don't want to Don't you think that I'm an extremist in saying this? The very worst political system in Israel in the world. You know why? We have an electoral system in Israel I mean, I can hear, I listened last night to Bernie Sanders complaining about your electoral system and not your electoral system your electoral systems, every state is different We Have an electoral system that is older than the state itself. We inherited an electoral system from a team called the Zionist Organization, which is the organization that was planning Israel. Hadassah was a part of that. It's a wonderful electoral system for a Hadassah meeting.
1: (laughs) It's a lousy electoral
0: system for running a country. And we inherited it to the extent that on the first election in Israel, a population of 600,000 people altogether, of whom 325,000 had the vote, the others were kids, 19 parties ran for election. Why? Because when you're in a Zionist movement, dreaming about Israel, you can create a new party over any stupid Syrian. I want all the roofs to be red. I want all the roofs to be green. I'm creating a separate party. So we had three religious parties, four socialist parties, two capitalist parties, and seven other parties that I don't know why they existed anyway, but they existed and they ran for election. So what happened? We had 19 parties running for election. No way can anyone ever get a majority. And Israel's democracy and its electoral system demands that whoever wins the election doesn't have a majority. Therefore, he has to create partnership with others. So what happens in Israel? If you win 47% of the vote and another party wins 5% of the vote, And you say to them, listen, let's get together. Together, we have more than 50%. Who's running the country? The guy with the 5%. Because at any moment, he can leave and the government will fall. My friend, and I don't support him at all, Bibi, I feel very sorry for him. He's running a government where he has a one man majority. If he moves to the left, the people on the right will leave and he's no longer the prime minister. If he moves to the right, the people on the left will leave and he's no longer the prime minister. The government will fall. It took Jewish men and women, primarily Hadassah ladies, to create this ridiculous electoral system. You're the only women's organization that was there as a women's organization. to create this electoral system. That's why I want to change the electoral system in Israel. Even what you have in America is better. And it's less democratic. In Israel, if you've got 5% of the vote, you are represented. In this country, if you have 50% plus 1, the person who had 49% minus 1, or 50% minus 1, is out. No representation. It's a less democratic, but it works a hell of a lot better. I think that'll help you understand why Israelis are very happy, and they shouldn't be.
1: (laughs) I get what you're saying about a family, but having been in Israel and to read a lot about it, I'm concerned about not everybody thinking that the Jews are a family. And I'll be very specific. So, you walk in, what happens if I walk into a Haredi neighborhood? Am I part of their family? The answer is no. And I tend to find that that's tearing apart Israel from the inside. I'd like to get your views on that.
0: It's much more complicated. When were you last in Israel? February?
1: No, last year. The group one. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you the Jewish member of the party or not? Uh, I, I didn't know it
1: was only for a couple of weeks. About,
0: about Jews. Have you walked to a Haredi place and you walked to like <laughs> a you Haredi community and you didn't feel part of the family? Uh, I did But if you did, you definitely not feel part of the family, and you're allowed to member of the family. Yes. Yeah. And that's why he's mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> you're not like him not that you're not a part of his family, because if you weren't a part of his family, he doesn't care what the hell you do. It's because you're a member of his family that he's married you. Because he expects you to be like him. But that's his problem. Don't it bother you. you be mad at him too. Isn't that Israel's problem? No. No, that's not Israel's problem. If we were all as concerned about how other people behave with each other, the two major problems in the Jewish people and Israel is the apathy in most of America towards Israel. I'm not worried by the people who criticize Israel. I love people who criticize Israel. When you criticize you're showing concern. You're showing involvement. You're showing you there. You don't have to criticize like a mother-in-law. You can criticize like a mother. (laughs) But what frightens me is apathy. Israel. what happening is the opposite. It's an over demand that you be like me. And it's not Amir Akarek, it's everyone. The kibbutznik wants you to be like him.
1: I'll
0: never forget my first experience in Israel. It was a shocking experience. I arrive, I'm going to a kibbutz, I get on the bus, I'm in the bus from Afula to Bet Sha'an. I've never been on the bus before, I'm sitting next to a kibbutznik. Suddenly I feel this guy pulling my shirt out of my pants and cleaning his glasses. (laughs) I just arrived from South Africa. It's not something that happened to me in South Africa. I said, what are you doing? His answer was, my shirt's dirty. His shirt was dirty, that's true. And therefore he could use my shirt to clean his glasses. We'll get over this because living together we're going to be forced to. Apathy is what's going to kill us.
1: Yes? What is the response uh, 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 of the, from the um, Orthodox community when you talk about adopting a convert?
0: Uh, I know two other Orthodox Jews who are supposed to be. <laughs> I'm having a very, very hard time with something. And they have a very difficult time because they can't answer me. Because they know that it's not conversion. They know what I'm talking about. And the issue over there is is conversion. And the average Israeli says, you know what? If it's conversion, then it should be in the hands of the rabbinate. And this gives them power. And the whole thing is a political game for power. And I don't want them to have the power. You know in any community in Eastern Europe in the ghetto, any three Jews could convert another. Not convert, could adopt another. You didn't need to be a rabbi. You didn't need to be from the rabbinate. That's a political game. And we have to find a way of stopping it. It's going to take time. You know how it's going to happen? These young people who come on honeymoon, Israel, come back and say, despite everything that's going on, I want to be a part of this family. I want to bring up my children as part of this family. And we're going to stay together and we're going to build a community back in Phoenix and wherever we are. And we're going to fight for things to change. That's when they're going to change that's why I love this idea when Honeymoon Israel said, we're not going to take a couple from Phoenix and a couple from Alaska and a couple from New York. We want at least 20 couples from Phoenix to come together, go back together, get to know each other better, build your own community, stick up for who you are, and we'll win the world. It'll take time, that's all. Of people. Yes. The fact that they have decided that That's all the to it. We decided that we are a family and we can go back years, but they decided that they're a family. That's what's known as uh, the right. There. So, I have a problem, with are Palestinians, there's nothing I can do about it, it's a matter that the Israeli Arab, I wish he would stop calling himself an Israeli Arab, I wish he would call himself an Israeli Palestinian, just like I'm an Israeli Jew, he's an Israeli Palestinian, I'm a member of the Jewish people, he's part of the Palestinian people. Israelis would understand that they're Jewish if the Arabs would start calling themselves Palestinians, and it's happening more and more. And I'm now at war with the Palestinians, unfortunately. It's going to either end by our deciding to live in one state together, or we're going to kill each other, or we're going to build two states. But one of those three, three things is going to happen. And if you ask me to choose, I still think living two states is see another solution. Now we're not ready for it yet. Many of my Israelis still think that I'm living God's promise to return me to my land, which he may be right. I don't know. I can't decide for God. And he's not not giving up on that. It takes time. And Palestinians are not giving up on saying that I'm a foreigner. He can say it as much as he wants. I'm not a foreigner. When these people come to Israel the air that they breathe is the history of the Jewish people. Not the history of the Jewish people. What is it? What I tell you is not history? Ah, who is that?
1: (laughs) Jews don't
0: have history. Jews have memory. And as long as we have that memory That land cries out to our memory and is central to my memory. The Palestinians are going to have to learn, and I'm going to have to live with me, as I'm going to have to learn to live with him. Yeah?
1: Basic question, and this is about the United States. Um, When we adopt a person into our family, how much of their rituals from their past?
0: Oh, God, thank you for that. Don't ever turn your back on other memories. But making the decision to be adopted is making a decision which memory do you want to live and which memory do you want to give to your children. It is not, in my opinion, healthy to try to give different memories to people because they sometimes contradict each other. I'm a real pluralist in Judaism. What's the difference between pluralism and assimilation? Pluralism is when you allow for different interpretations of a common memory. What's assimilation? Living somebody else's memory. I respect other people's memory, but I have to decide which memory I'm going to live. I'll give you one simple example. If you say, I want to bring up my children with both traditions, what are you going to tell the child? that the Messiah has arrived or the Messiah hasn't come? (laughs) Not easy. And the greatest thing about the Jewish Messiah... That he hasn't come. You know why? That gives us hope for a better world. I'm
1: talking about the Christmas tree and the Easter (laughs) eggs. I'm talking about the Christmas tree and the Easter eggs.
0: Yes. Christmas tree, by the way, you know, Russian Jews (laughs) all have Christmas trees Mm -hmm. in Israel. It's a big business. (laughs) It never happens around the 25th of December. It happens on the date of the Russian Orthodox Christmas. But they have Christmas trees. And Israelis used to get all uptight about it. And then they realized there's nobody who's less religious than a Russian. He has a Christmas tree because of a tradition. It's got nothing to do with a religion. It doesn't bother me terribly. What bothers me is the serious questions about living with two traditions. I thank you all for listening to me. I really have to get to Florida. (laughs)